Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As expected, President Biden has announced his re-election run as House Republicans pass a one-year debt increase and spending cuts, even as both Republicans and Democrats worry a debt default lies ahead in America's future. China's ambassador to France causes a diplomatic spat after questioning the independence of former Soviet states. Xi Jinping calls Vladimir Zelensky as China steps up its diplomatic engagement worldwide. America and South Korea strike a new nuclear deal and Australia reveals its new security strategy. Two Republican governors and presidential hopefuls travel to Asia and a new Chinese base in the United Arab Emirates. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair of the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast. That is a must for anybody uh, interested in the transatlantic relationship, fresh back from a stint uh, in Paris at Sciences Po and former Pentagon Comptroller, Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Uh, everybody, welcome. Good morning. It wouldn't be uh, Friday unless we were having this conversation. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, welcome again, everybody. Michael, uh, Republicans narrowly passed their uh, budget uh, deal uh, for a one-year debt ceiling increase, along with sharp uh, spending cuts, uh, some of which arguably might make sense. For example, uh, COVID spending may uh, be overcome by events at this point, while others uh, significantly less support for those uh, aimed at undermining the president's agenda, uh, fundamentally and legislative record. Walk us through where we stand and what all of this means for uh, defense. And Dove, I want to bring you in because both of you guys have been having a lot of debt conversations. And what's really interesting is in the last week, we know we have been on, on a debt watch and the temperature, the rhetoric and everything is rapidly changing from we want to avoid this, we're just negotiating to, oh my God, we're going to go over the cliff and, and default us. Washington, uh, Wall Street will have the last word on that as last time we got a downgrade, we haven't lived off. Michael, go ahead. So last week, uh, the Republicans unveiled their plan, as we discussed, uh, which they called Limit, Save, Grow Act uh, of 2023 in order to raise the debt ceiling. And, you know, it capped discretionary spending levels at FY22 levels. It capped growth at 1% a year uh, for 10 years. As you mentioned, it clawed back on spent COVID funds. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, it also uh, only extends the debt ceiling uh, for one year, you know, but um, apparently that was not enough for a lot of the conservatives. Um, and, and also some of the Iowans were having trouble with that bill too, because it, it, it um, had stripped out uh, tax credits for biofuels, which is, you know, is an incentive to buy ethanol. And House leadership said, look, this is our package and we are not changing it. And they were trudging forward uh, Tuesday to the Rules Committee to get this ready for a vote on Wednesday. However, at 2 a.m. on Wednesday morning, they realized they did not have enough votes to, to, to pass the package. So they adjusted the, um, the biofuels tax credits in order to appease the Iowans to get all four of them on board. And 
they made more draconian uh, cuts in this measure in order to get some conservatives who were, were weighing against uh, voting for the measure. You know, things like uh, rescinding even more parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, making work requirements for welfare and other programs more stringent and starting a year earlier than initially planned. Uh, so with those tweaks, as you mentioned, they were able to pass this narrowly, uh, 217 to 215. Only four Republicans uh, voted against it. Uh, so now, you know, the Democrats came out obviously swinging because remember this bill does not really specify beyond the things I mentioned what the cuts are. It just says they're going back to FY22 levels. So veterans are, uh, so Democrats are saying this will also include cuts to veterans uh, as well as border security, uh, since we know right now that the Republicans don't plan to cut defense. That's not entirely accurate. Uh, Republicans are saying that they do plan to add money or not cut veterans benefits and the same with border security in addition to defense which means even deeper cuts in all the other appropriations bills. I think it's fair to say that there will be deep cuts in things like you know, rail safety at a time we're seeing a lot of train derailments, uh, air traffic control at a time we're seeing uh, some near misses, uh, cuts to food safety, Medicaid, you know, workforce training, food stamps, foreign aid, Meals on Wheels for Senior Citizens, Educational Subsidies, uh, Subsidies to the Affordable Care Act, uh, cuts probably to our federal law enforcement like the FBI. But this was exactly what Biden wanted and what he's been waiting for because he wanted to use this as a cudgel over Republicans uh, in order in, in, the, in the 24 elections. But, you know, this still is a really big deal that the Republicans were able to pass this with the slim majority that they have. And it is the only uh, legislative package that's passed that raises that ceiling. Remember the Senate has done nothing, uh, has not brought anything to the floor to try and raise the debt ceiling. And the president continues to refuse to negotiate. And I think now that this has passed, it will force uh, the president to negotiate with the Republicans. However, you do have many of these hardcore conservatives in the Freedom Caucus that are now out there saying that in order to get their support on this legislation, they claim that McCarthy promised them that um, this debt ceiling bill they voted for is the floor in negotiations and not the ceiling. And that McCarthy agreed uh, that he will be against any agreement that does not include these red meat provisions. Now, people close to McCarthy say that that's not the case, but this puts him in a very difficult position because we all know that any final deal to raise the destiny would not include a lot of these things. And will that result in some of these right wing members uh, offering a motion to vacate the chair and trying to strip McCarthy of his speakership? At the same time, the sense of urgency has declined a little bit because Goldman Sachs came out on Wednesday uh, saying that the default deadline is now probably mid-July, not June. So uh, Congress goes on recess today for a week, uh, so nothing's going to happen uh, until they get back a uh, week of May 10th. And again, that, that sense of urgency is just not there right now. So in the Senate, you have the two senior appropriators, Patty Murray and Susan Collins. They're at least starting their process uh, to fund the government and try and produce uh, appropriations legislation. But I will say that I'm hearing more and more from House Democrats fear of a possible default, and more and more from very senior House Republicans that they think this framework is unworkable and we're going to end up with a CR for at least a year, if not two years. So what does this mean specifically uh, for defense, where we have a bunch of other clouds as well? Tommy Tuberville uh, has a hold on uh, military uh, folks um, uh, getting uh, promotions. So that's clogging up the whole general uh, officer um, assignment process, even though we had Randy George, uh, the vice chief, being named to succeed Jim McConville uh, as the chief of staff of the United States Army, uh, a positive thing, but a lot of other major personnel decisions. I mean, we're, we're trying to book interviews with uh, four stars and three stars and some of the right three stars, and everybody's sort of a little bit gooned up on this. What does all of this mean for the outlook for defense spending? Because uh, as uh, I mentioned, 
uh, last week. Uh, Rob Whitman uh, was on the program and he made clear there's not going to be that much more money. And that's assuming budgetary, you know, that's assuming we don't have any more budgetary antics. That's true. But look, uh, I think that in, in the short run uh, for defense, things are looking positive in the sense that I would expect the House Armed Services Committee to add at least $10 billion uh, to the top line of defense and the appropriators to add at least $5 billion uh, to their top line. The Senate... I've heard numbers as high as 30 billion coming out over there. Now, they're all working behind the scenes together to see if they can come to some consensus. But, you know, when, if when these bills in committee will have higher numbers. The real problem here is that if they get them out of committee, these bills can't pass the floor. Uh, you know, the defense bill, if it gets out of committee and goes to the floor, I'm talking about defense appropriations now, um, th- there's n- all the Republicans on both for that bill. We usually lose 50, 60 Republicans on that bill. So you're going to need Democratic votes. And Democrats are not going to give Republicans the votes on that bill if they're cutting the non-defense domestic discretionary as deep as they say they want to. So that means CR. And if we end up with a CR, that is a cut. Uh, and in addition to a cut, you know, as Dove knows better than I do, it restricts our ability to do new research and development, to procure new systems. And all it does is let the Chinese not only catch up to us, but even get further ahead of us of the things that they already uh, are. Now, as far as Tupperville is concerned, you know, it's amazing to me that Elizabeth Warren in the Senate is becoming the champion right now to try and get these these holds lifted. And she's written a letter to Lloyd Austin uh, seeking details on the impact of these holds uh, and is you know, saying that delaying these posts is, is a grave threat to our national security. And she's 100 uh, percent correct. And my understanding is that we're now up to about 200 uh, promotions that are being held up. Um, but Senator Schumer, you know, who controls the Senate calendar, has said he is not going to give in uh, to Tupperville's demands. And some Republicans have just have suggested as a compromise, just let the Senate vote on the abortion policy just to assuage his concerns and let's move on. And Schumer says, no, he's not going to do it because it would set a very bad precedent. And look, they could vote on these nominations, but it would take a tremendous amount of time. They usually vote on them as a huge block to get them through. If they started to do them one at a time, it would suck up all the time on the Senate floor. So as of now, we really are nowhere. Uh, Very uh, frustrating. uh, Let me give you an opportunity uh, to weigh in on this, because I know uh, as we were preparing for this, uh, you had been talking uh, to, to both sides about this and where we sort of stand. Well, it's pretty much as Michael has laid out, uh, there is tremendous pessimism now as to whether, you know, there will not be a, some kind of debt disaster. And, and the reason is, uh, as Michael said, uh, McCarthy's in an impossible position. If he somehow cuts a deal, he could be out of his job. And after all said and done, look how desperate he was to get the job in the first place. And if he doesn't cut a deal, then you've got a, a, a debt disaster. Uh, Biden's not going to give in for the reasons we've heard. It, it's good politics um, in one sense. Uh, and most people don't understand what that debt default means anyway, but they will understand about the programs that are being cut. I heard $15 billion on the House side, but that's the authorizers. Uh, probably will go down to about $5 billion. And, the, and I heard on the Senate side, It'll be roughly 25, 30 billion, and they'll they'll negotiate that thing. The one thing that get that might get around the CR problem with new starts is that uh, the Pentagon did send up a request to um, have more flexibility on new starts um, and essentially give the service secretaries, uh, I guess, uh, up to 300 million to work on new starts, even in a CR uh, environment. The question of course, is whether Republicans will go along with that. Um, 
it may be that they will simply because they don't want to get blamed for letting the Chinese, as, as Michael said, get further ahead. Uh, but some people are pessimistic and say, no, they're so bloody minded, they won't want to do that anyway. So I think we're in for a very rough time uh, at the very same time that uh, the Chinese keep charging ahead. And one one issue that I, I was speaking to somebody on the uh, strategy commission, one issue that clearly is a concern is the administration cannot think about dealing with more than one adversary at one time, even though we've seen Iranian drones in, in the Ukraine war on the Russian side and the Chinese helping the Russians and North Korean artillery helping the Russians. We're not doing that. So the combination of not thinking about perhaps a, a more demand demanding circumstance than we have been thinking about and going with CRs is just a complete disaster. Uh, couldn't uh, agree with you uh, more on the problematic nature of of sort of where we are and where we're uh, potentially going. Let me go back to you, Michael, because I know you're on a on a short rope and and you're going to have to uh, head off in a moment. Talk to us a little bit. I mean, right in the in the most unsurprising announcement in recent memory, Joe Biden said that he's running again. Three minute uh, video short suite and to the point, making the case why he should be uh, get another four years uh, as uh, president. Uh, Trump was first to announce Asa Hutchinson, uh, the Arkansas governor has announced, and now Florida's Ron DeSantis is on a around the world trip to show his statesmanlike nature. And Glenn Youngkin uh, just purely by accident ended up in Taiwan. Uh, obviously nothing, uh, nothing to see there. W where is this heading? How does this shape uh, anything uh, ultimately, um, you know, and, and change the dynamic, even though we've talked about this stuff last week, you know, you mentioned that this does change everything because now the president is a presidential candidate. He's also been a politician uh, for, <laughs> you know, going on 60 years. Anyway, Michael, go ahead. No, I look, I, I agree. It was, it was a pretty low key announcement, but as I mentioned last week, I mean, I, I personally think it was well-timed uh, to come out this week to draw a contrast between the president and, and the Republicans. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, in his, in his announcement video, I mean, he talks about the, you know, finishing the job, which was the theme he talked about in the state of the union address and continuing the fight for our democracy. And in the background of the video was you know, people storming the Capitol on January 6th. He talked a lot about, you know, personal freedoms, uh, you know, things like, you know, access to abortion, uh, access to the right to vote, uh, you know, choosing who you love, uh, you know, talked about Republicans banning books. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of that video was also very upbeat. There was a very upbeat music and, uh, you know, a lot of it really focused a lot on joy and, and humanity, which is really a contrast with the president whose vision and the music he will play is going to be very dark. And the president doesn't smile. And he talks about uh, American carnage and it's all about grievance uh, and revenge. Um, and, you know, right now, I mean, the president, I mean, the former President Trump seems to be the front runner in the Republican primary, even though, yes, other people are out there weighing, announcing and have announced. But uh, the head of the uh, Senate uh, Republican campaign arm, Senator Steve Daines, who's on defense appropriations, uh, surprised everybody earlier this week by endorsing Trump. Because, uh, you know, a lot of Republican senators blame Trump for having lost the Senate in 2020 and 2022. And, and Daines' rationale apparently is by endorsing Trump, he can work with Trump uh, to convince him uh, not to get involved in these Senate primaries and pick very you know, weak candidates that can't win the general election. I personally don't agree with that because Rick Scott, who was the head of the campaign arm before, was extremely pro-Trump, and it did not prevent Trump from getting involved in these primaries and picking candidates that were incredibly weak and, and cost Republicans a, a Senate majority. Uh, at the same time, I've talked to several Republican House members who are very concerned 
uh, and that's putting it lightly, about receiving a call from Trump asking for their endorsement. Because uh, they don't want to, a lot of guys don't want to endorse Trump, but they feel they have to uh, because they're fearful of what Trump's reaction will be, number one, and they're fearful of getting a primary. I've had several Republican members text me uh, over the last several days about how much grief they're getting back home because they have not endorsed uh, Trump yet. So I would expect more and more House members and senators to continue to endorse Trump, even though that's not the course that they, that they want to take. Uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a great weekend. Um, Jim and Patrick, you've been very patient, but Dove, uh, you wanted to make one uh, last uh, budgetary uh, point uh, as well. Uh, go ahead before we shift to uh, Europe and cover what has been uh, a busy week, not just in Europe, the war, but also uh, in Asia. Go ahead, Dove. It's really about Tommy Tuberville. Um, the White House seems to be almost censoring itself or slow rolling the most of the senior appointments for the Joint Chiefs, including chairman, because they're afraid that Tuberville is going to block that too, and it'll be a huge embarrassment all around. Um, so the damage that he's causing is such that uh, from the top down, no one knows what's going to be ha happening over the summer. And, you know, when, when somebody is, is in line and has been announced by the White House, they have to be careful about presuming that they're being appointed, but at least they start thinking about what they're going to do. And right now, it's not clear that they feel comfortable even doing that. Uh, in, in, indeed. Um, let's uh, shift to the world. Jim and Patrick, uh, as I mentioned, you guys have been very patient. Uh, and, and obviously, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, all of this sort of chaos and, and churn um, does send uh, worrying uh, signals. Thankfully, our adversaries uh, are making mistakes <laughs> even faster uh, than uh, we are. Uh, Jim, a very big week, uh, obviously, uh, in Europe. But we heard from NATO's Supreme Allied Commander, General Chris Cavoli, saying that uh, Russia uh, is weak, but that Ukraine has to move fast before Moscow uh, can fully rearm itself. Grinch, Grinch, uh, Grinkevich, uh, the U.S. Air Force's central commander, the U.S. Air Force three-star, uh, talked about how the Russians are trying to make life more complicated for us uh, in Syria. Dove, I think, is going to talk about that uh, in, in a moment, to precipitate an incident to make it seem as though it is the United States you know, is, is against Russia. Uh, we uh, had a barrage of uh, uh, Russian missiles hit Ukraine for the first time uh, in some weeks, uh, underscoring the, uh, the point that Kiev needs better missile defenses. That attack came days after she uh, talked to uh, Zelensky. A conspiratorial mind might say that these strikes are sort of inter interrelated. What's all this mean about where we sort of are uh, and where we're going? as the Chinese try to portray themselves as peacemakers. Um, I, I think Putin would like to figure out a way to, uh, to win this. So I don't, I'm not necessarily sure he's all that interested in coming to the negotiating table. Uh, and I'm not sure the Chinese want to resolve this because it's a good bandwidth distraction for, for everybody, even if he wants to help an ally. How do we need to think about where we are and where we're going? Well, I guess a couple of things. Uh, when you started talking about Europe, you, you mentioned that our adversaries were making lots of mistakes too. Uh, they don't think they are. I, I think the Russians, uh, they, they've, they've hit obstacles, but in terms of making strategic mistakes or going being in the wrong direction, I don't think that's where Putin is. I think he is, he's settling in uh, for a long game uh, and he's an opportunist and he is going to do whatever it takes uh, to wait us out and to wear down Ukraine. And he's going to steadily build up his forces. You know, he'll probably have another 
maybe not a uh, grand announcement, but he'll be continuing to bring in young Russians uh, and so and to build uh, defenses and to dig in around the Donbas area. So we're going to see the, a continuation from Russia of the things that we've seen in the past. And I think I know Doves, you'll talk about Syria, but just to, just to make the point that you know, they've been pushing us all over the place, including in Syria, for years now. Uh, and um, I'll leave the thunder to Dove. But uh, but but, you know, he the, the, the Russians lose no opportunity to put pressure on us globally, wherever they can. Uh, and so um, one mistake, uh, like over the Black Sea uh, or something along those lines, and uh, we'll see how the nations react. But uh, but I, in terms of this past week, you know, I think with the Chinese and, uh, you know, uh, I, I think this is a continuation of some of the things that we've seen in the past. I was surprised by the by the call. Uh, I'll leave it to Patrick, though, to really unpack it for us. But uh, but, you know, I think really what we're seeing this week is just a continuing buildup of expectations about the Ukraine um, offensive. Uh, and, and I'm really worried about that because. Uh, there's an expectations now sky high uh, that this is their only shot, that this is going to have to really uh, prove to everyone that the continued assistance is 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 deserved and needed there with Ukraine, that they're going to have a chance to, you know, there's a lot riding on this. I understand that. But I think there's this has been played up in the media and other places so much uh, that it's going to be impossible to meet these expectations. Uh, and we've got to tamp that down and understand that this offensive, when it happens, is not necessarily going to look like the last summer's offensive that they right. that they were able to do, and so, uh, I, so for me, just to finish up here, Bago, I'm I'm concerned that we not here in the U.S. and in the West that we stop putting so much pressure uh, on this offensive. Yes, it's an important one. Yes, we want it to be successful, but defining what a successful offensive looks like is going to be difficult. It's not going to look like last summer. It's not necessarily going to even break the land bridge to Crimea, but it could still be successful. So I'm, that's what worries me the most, Vago. And and you would say, right, I mean, the Ukrainians are trying to underscore, we're, we're trying to say it's all about air and missile defenses. The Ukrainians are saying, look, we need combat aircraft. Uh, and they really want F-16s. Uh, Celeste Wallander said, they're not going to get F-16s. Uh, we've heard from senior administration officials, Air Force Secretary Kendall among them, when it, we are looking to reconstitute Ukraine's Air Force after the conflict, we're happy to entertain F-16s and any other uh, capabilities. Do you think that at some point this needle gets moved because folks are worried about, you know, we'll provoke the Russians? You know, no, nothing has ended up provoking the Russians. The Russians are self-provoking. They'll make an issue of something when they deem it to be an issue. And when we've managed to give quite a lot of aid to the Ukrainians to sort of move the needle, is that an inviolate needle, just like tanks once upon a time were, and air defenses and everything else? Yeah, I don't think there's anything inviolate, frankly. Uh, you know, for the reasons you've said, these uh, concerns and hand-wringing uh, haven't proven themselves out. And someone might say, well, maybe with the F-16s, it'll prove itself out. Well, maybe so or maybe not. So yes, I think I think eventually they will be uh, on the table, but I think it's, it's going to have to be dictated about where we are on the battlefield. Right now, I want us to focus on helping Ukraine um, with this offensive, and and here I am <laughs> talking about it. Uh, but but I but my concern is that rather than than all of us uh, heap uh, pressure about the F-16s. Let's think about how we can back up this offensive if they have a breakthrough. Uh, 
if they have a tough time, if they, uh, you know, no matter where this might head, we're going to need to have ammunition and other follow on support for Ukraine based on what happens in this offensive. F-16s are right now for me are, are not a follow on support for the, 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 the near term issue of backing them up after this offensive takes off. Uh, they're going to need all kinds of things. And uh, that's let's focus on that. And the F-16s will come when we're ready. But right now, uh, let's let's help them with this offensive. Let's not build it up into something that's not. Uh, but let's make sure that we've got plenty of ammo and other things coming their way uh, once this offensive uh, kicks off. Logistics is everything. Uh, Patrick, you've been very patient, and I'm going to come to you in a second because we've got an enormous amount of things uh, to discuss, including Yoon's uh, visit, the Australian strategy. Uh, but Jim, I just want to ask you, China's ambassador to France, Lu Xie, uh, said that uh, former Soviet republics really aren't sovereign under international law. Beijing has sort of backpedaled that. Uh, a bit, uh, but that's caused a furor at a time in, in Europe, at a time uh, when uh, Beijing is trying to boost uh, its uh, influence. Uh, walk us through the impact and the implications of this. And, and Patrick, want to get your sense as the Chinese try to play a bigger negotiating role. It does seem like, no pun intended, they're on a roll uh, in trying to sort of assert their global uh, influence. Uh, and and then what happens is that they screw up by making comments like this. Jim, your sense, and then Patrick, yours. Well, it certainly helps us make the case to the capitals in Europe that they really need to come closer to our position on a lot of things dealing with China. Uh, as we've said in the past, uh, we might uh, assume that the Europeans are right, in, right, in, right with us in terms of China. And they might even say that when they come visit Washington. But when they go back to their capitals, and I'm thinking about Germany particularly, they've got big bilateral uh, things happening with China economically uh, that they really are trying to protect as best they can. And so when the uh, Chinese ambassador says stuff like that, uh, it, it, it helps to pull the veil away from Beijing uh, in terms of uh, in terms of European thinking, uh, I'm not sure the person in the street there in Europe uh, knows much about what the Chinese ambassador said. But, you know, then the capitals, uh, those the governments there in Europe heard that and went, geez, you know, that's the last thing we need to have him say something like that as we're trying to make the case that, uh, hey, we need to have strong relationships, economic relations with China and we got to keep the U.S., at arm's length, uh, you know, so that position was undercut by this Chinese ambassador. So, so, uh, you know, hats off to the ambassador. I hope they give him a promotion. <laughs> That's right. When, when your adversary is making a mistake, uh, don't correct them. And it, it certainly is interesting, right, right after uh, Macron's uh, sort of seeming to sidle up to China a little bit to have uh, a statement like this come from the very guy who helped the Chinese calculate the right package to get Macron to say the right things was just a catastrophic error, uh, I think, on his part to give this sort of wide-ranging uh, televised interview where people were we were sort of watching this uh, be be bewildered. Uh, Patrick, um, you could look at this, you know, uh, those statements to be uh, very accurately reflective maybe of how China does see the world, uh, right? I mean, it makes territorial claims just because it had stuff 5,400 years ago it's not really an automatic thing, in which case a lot of nations would be a lot bigger than they are uh, today if you if you go by that measure. Um, we have the Yun visit, Australia's strategy. Uh, start us off a little bit about what China is trying to do or not do uh, in uh, Ukraine and the diplomatic spat 
We'll get to the Yoon visit and then the Australian strategy in a moment. Go ahead. Yeah, let me pick up with the theory about why uh, Ambassador Luce was at it again. He has uh, been noted to be extremely outspoken and, and uh, irritating from time to time, but but not without purpose. And here he was doing a couple of things for Beijing and for the party. Um, first, he was setting up Xi Jinping's call to Zelensky. Um, and so before Xi Jinping was finally going to call Zelensky uh, in his uh, capacity as the pro-Russian neutral, quote unquote, uh, you know, to try to mediate, um, he uh, wanted to make sure that Putin knew that he was on his side. And so Luce basically says, you know, we don't even think these things are legitimate. Uh, Baltic republics, et cetera, you don't exist. And then they walked it back to uh, uh, appease the European anger. Um, and as Jim suggested, you can't really walk all that back. It kind of does lift the veil on really how they think. But that's the two-step. The other part of that uh, deliberate uh, uh, provocation from Luce was the Taiwan parallel, which is they want to make sure that it's known that they're going to want Russia support if they go into Taiwan because they want the same principle to apply. Um, so there's a there's a much more sinister interpretation by this deliberate, uh, outrageous uh, statement from the Chinese ambassador in France. What the Chinese are up to are a lot of things, uh, steps forward, steps backward, steps sideways. Another backward step, I think, has been the raiding of U.S. businesses um, like Mints and Bain um, in China. Um, and this has been getting increased uh, scrutiny outside of China, obviously not inside. Um, but the speculation here, and there's a good piece in the Wall Street Journal on this, that uh, this is really a, a fear inside the party, inside Beijing, that these firms, management consultants and accountant accounting firms, uh, are are basically providing the the, the critical on the ground information that is allowing the Biden administration, for instance, to uh, slap on uh, sanctions and block things like chip making technology. Um, and while some of that may be true, it 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 doesn't seem um, it doesn't seem rational that the firms that are benefiting from doing work in China are the leaders of trying to cut down that work uh, and trade with China. Um, so instead, I think uh, Beijing should be looking elsewhere for the problem, and, and the problem may be with them, um, because they're really not attracting foreign direct investment with this with this strategy. Um, now, China is also up to building a global base, and this is what we got from one of the leaked documents the Washington Post uh, uh, analyzed um, on a global basing strategy that the Chinese appear to be at work at. None right. of it was totally surprising, but um, the numbers stand out, talking about five bases globally. 10 logistical facilities, those both by the year 2030, and then 100 plus commercial ports around the world for logistical support. And the, and the base that got the most attention was Khalifa port. This is the main container port, Abu Dhabi, uh, UAE being one of our big uh, uh, you know, Gulf partners. And here are the Chinese uh, seriously encroaching uh, with a military presence into the UAE. Um, the memo said, uh, the, the document said it wasn't clear whether the UAE had made a, a decision or whether this is kind of just hedging. I would assume it's hedging at this point, and they're probably keeping their options open. Um, but nonetheless, it's a, it's of great concern to be so close to our major base uh, in, in the region as well. Uh, you know, I, I want to uh, just uh, not to interrupt you, uh, Patrick, but to get a little bit deeper into whether or not the strategy is actually going well beyond basing, right? We have a, we have a, you know, there's a tit for tat, obviously, in this, right? Some folks in the Gulf say, hey, if America had struck uh, a, an agreement with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, there would be no need to get the Chinese into this. On the other hand, you know, there are folks in Washington who say, hey, look, 
you know, we asked you not to do this and you're doing this. And the concern also extends to a lot of our other allies and partners, given that UAE is seen differently as, than Djibouti. We're focused on Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwan. Uh, is the Chinese game actually far broader and we're sort of missing it? where it's sidling up to countries that have big banking systems to try to get the dollar out of international trade, as we saw with Lula. Are we focusing on the Taiwan problem at the expense of actually all of these other mechanical things where China really does seem, whether, you know, even with a Luce faux pas, to be really on a roll in many respects in a, in a lot of ways? Indeed, a friend of mine uh, in Korea recently said, the correlation of forces is with China. And while I didn't accept that, uh, it was a, a kind of a, a sentiment that is widespread that the Chinese are moving in so many different levels. And I think if there's one element of this basing document that was leaked, uh, I think it's it's to help you, you know, people understand the scope of what they're doing. And that's just to support their military operations, but all the way, it's also supported by their civilian commercial maritime networks around the world. So not only will they have the ability to monitor everything we do in every choke point in the world, but they'll have dominance on the seas potentially and um, uh, an ability to both uh, stop power projection toward China, but also to project Chinese power forward. And I'm thinking of this just as two naval ships uh, pulled into Sudan uh, to evacuate the Chinese with a big banner on it uh, saying, Chairman Xi has provided these naval ships for you to come home. Um, and, you know, the Chinese are up to lots of things right now, and it's because of their growth and because of their malign behavior from time to time and their unknown intentions or some of their known intentions that have people concerned. This is not about America just retaining its hegemony or position, although certainly we want to retain as much power as we can. But we're doing that increasingly with allies and partners like the Philippines, where we just had the Balakatan exercise finished this week. Uh, and President Marcos, you know, sitting in a high Mars truck where, you know, these are the multiple rocket launchers that are firing toward the Bashi Channel um, that might hit Chinese ships. And we are focused on the Taiwan scenario because we want deterrence every day. But there is this larger strategy going on. And uh, you saw that this week in uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's uh, excellent speech at Brookings. I commend everybody to look at it because it's the best statement, even if you disagree with it, about what is our economic strategy. Um, and it's interesting because they're drawing, the administration is drawing the line on uh, de-risking, which is the same term that uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen used in her great speech to Beijing recently that got overlooked because of Macron's uh, interview. Um, and it's all about um, trying to reduce the vulnerable critical technology sectors and the critical materials that, like rare earths that go into them, um, but not to decouple. Um, and so, in fact, the Chinese found something positive in that, that von der Leyen speech and that presumably in Jake Sullivan's speech as a result. But there's another school of thought here in the United States and in Washington brewing that, no, we're already in a new Cold War and it's much worse than that. And we need to do much more serious decoupling. We need to do much more to uh, to stop and deter China's coercion and potential use of force. And that's an ongoing you know, national debate. And I think it's we should have the debate. It's, it's a welcome debate. Um, there's no easy answer to this, but maybe I should just point now to the Australian Defense Review because, for right. in some ways, this tease well, give, us, all... give us talk about the Australian yeah. Defense Review and then what Yoon uh, yeah. and uh, 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 Let me and end Biden on... decided, which was very, very big and a yeah. tacit acknowledgement of North Korea as a nuclear state. Right? I mean, there was a lot of subtext messaging that was also going on here. 
Okay. I, I want to end with the Koreans. Uh, it, it was very big, but let me just go through sure. quickly on the Australian Defense Review. This is an important review. Um, you know, here you have uh, not just the defense minister now, but you have the former defense uh, minister, Stephen Smith, uh, the former chief of uh, the Australian Defense Force staff, uh, Angus Houston. You have a really smart uh, alliance expert like Peter Dean. Uh, who all contributed a lot to this, <clears throat> the public version of the document that's available online, some hundred pages. There's a classified version as well. And it says that, look, the ADF is not fit for purpose. Um, and, you know, China is uh, doing um, such a military buildup that is inexplicable, really, when you think about the threats that they don't face. Um, and and yet the, here's their biggest buildup since World War II. Um, and and we're, we have to approach this with urgency. We have to uh, establish things like long-range strike for Australia, but also we have to go through a, a new process, uh, which they've now promised, to develop a strategy. And that's the question. What is the strategy for AUKUS and the submarines and for the pillar? What is the strategy for our new uh, EDCA bases with the Philippines? What's our strategy you know, going forward beyond deterring the day-to-day -day, uh, potential conflict on Taiwan? Um, and, and I think that's a huge issue. Now, meanwhile... Here comes South Korean President Yoon with a seat at the high table, not just here in Washington, but literally globally uh, with this state visit. This is uh, was a significant visit um, from the South Korean president who has been leaning into the U.S.-South Korean alliance. This is the 70th anniversary of, uh, of, of the alliance uh, that was struck just months after the armistice of 1953 as the, the Korean War was suspended. And that is a... Um, uh, you know, it was a great tribute to all the efforts that have come before, including uh, the very uh, touching uh, sort of the identification of, of Army Corporal Luther Story, Medal of Honor winner, previously unidentified, second ID, lost his life. Um, and he has, uh, you know, now been identified uh, during some of the commemorative uh, ceremonies at, at, at the memorials. Uh, but also um, on the White House lawn, I was there with throngs of hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, celebrating the arrival of President Yoon um, on a beautiful day at the White House. That night, of course, the uh, the state dinner where President Yoon uh, showed off his karaoke skills by, you know, that he could sing American Pie um, and impress the world. Um, I think surprise, maybe the most surprising thing on the, on the trip. Um, but the, and then the next day addressing Congress. But you're right; it was the nuclear issues, uh, both at Congress and in the uh, uh, releases, uh, press releases, and the in the statements, um, and in the visit to the Pentagon that got the most attention. That the two allies, South Korea and the United States, have agreed through a Washington declaration that there is going to be a much bigger voice for South Korea in strategic nuclear planning through a nuclear consultative group. Now, a lot of people are asking questions: Well, how does this really change anything? because the U.S. still retains the ultimate decision-making. Well, that's true. That was always going to be the case. But literally, South Korea's voice is going to be heard. And you heard it this week with uh, President Yoon saying, you know, as you say, acknowledging North Korea's uh, nuclear weapon status, but also acknowledging that uh, South Korean President Yoon can basically threaten nuclear uh, war. And that's almost what he, he came close to doing that uh, in terms of saying, if you, North Korea, use those nuclear weapons against Seoul, we will respond with nuclear weapons. Well, it, he can't quite, he can say it, but he's not the ultimate decision maker. And I think right. that's sort of this new close integration of relationship. And meanwhile, we're going to be putting an SSBN to, into ports from time to time in South Korea. We're also reportedly going to be landing some of those bombers that occasionally fly over South Korea. In both cases, that's the placement of nuclear capable platforms 
uh, on or around the peninsula, uh, which is getting very close to the reintroduction of nuclear weapons to South Korea, but it's not. So we're stopping short of the line of giving them a finger on the button or putting nuclear weapons on the peninsula, but we're stopping just short of those. And they really do have this bigger voice. And I think that's an important thing for both reassuring South Koreans. It's important for propping up uh, President Yoon's big support for the alliance, including, by the way, calling out uh, Russia's aggression against Ukraine. And this latest attack on civilians in Ukraine is exactly what's going to allow South Korea ultimately to provide even more lethal aid, even, uh, including 155 ammunition to Ukraine, I believe. Um, And and finally, uh, South Korea has uh, just shown that they are not going to go down the path of creating an independent nuclear weapon at this point. This doesn't quell all of that debate. That debate's going to go on. Um, But for the moment, and under the UN administration, um, that's been put off, and they're going to double down on trying to leverage the American nuclear arsenal for deterrence and for peace. Um, I uh, think... Uh, it's this is all very fascinating to watch because I think the Chinese are doing sort of three circles, right? The core is uh, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. There is an outer ring to that of authoritarian countries and the countries that they need to manipulate. India falls into uh, that uh, 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 ring. Saudi Arabia, UAE, Hungary even can fall into that second ring. Uh, and then you've got the third ring of countries that either can't or won't or you know, um, afford to choose that'll be in that outer ring uh, that'll slide uh, back and forth. Uh, Dove, uh, Patrick brought it back. I just want to point out to the audience that you wrote a piece uh, in The Hill, how a successful Ukrainian spring offensive could lead to Putin's downfall and Yevgeny Prigozhin's elevation uh, to uh, president. Uh, that's going to be interesting seeing from the, the Wagner group uh, head uh, is always uh, very vocal. Just give us a quick synopsis of, of the story and, and how, whether my rings concept is is relevant from, from your reading of things. Go ahead. Well, very quickly on the story, Prigozhin has based, publicly said that uh, Putin ought to get smart and uh, cut a deal now uh, and uh, essentially digest what he has already swallowed. How that sits with Putin, I don't know, but it certainly lays down a marker that Prigozhin uh, has a different idea of how things should work out. And if the Ukrainian counteroffensive is successful, and I agree, I mean, we're, we're talking too much about it, but were it successful, uh, that could allow Prigozhin to say, hey, this guy's got to go. He failed. He didn't listen to my advice. We could have done well, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, this is just, it's obviously speculation, but it's something to consider as uh, we move closer and closer to this uh, planned counteroffensive. Uh, on the larger point, I want to add something to what Patrick said. The, uh, there apparently are now 19 countries that have applied to essentially be part of what are called the BRICS. And the BRICS are Brazil, which has not been all that supportive of the United States, India, which we just mentioned, Russia and China. And of these 19 countries, several are really interesting, like Iran, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia just cut some kind of arrangement with Iran uh, and Egypt and 14 and 15 others. So this goes, I think, to Patrick's point. The Chinese are playing three dimensional chess here, and it's not just focusing just on what China might do to Taiwan, it, it, we really need to have a much broader strategy. 
Part of our problem is that regardless of which side you argue, we tend to look at one problem, seriatim. Problem one, then we'll deal with problem two. And what the Chinese are showing us is that doesn't work. If you've got Iranian drones helping the Russians and the Chinese helping the Russians uh, and so on, uh, maybe even the Venezuelans helping the Russians, we may find ourselves dealing with a, a crisis on multiple fronts. The Chinese are clearly thinking about that. We, I would argue, are not. Uh, interesting uh, indeed. Um, let me uh, ask you real quick. Uh, Israel's uh, 75th uh, anniversary on, on April 24th was uh, the 108th commemoration of uh, the Armenian uh, genocide. 1.5 million Armenians uh, perished at the hands of Ottoman Turkey. And yet Armenia's uh, President Nikol Pashinyan suggested, uh, you know, let's freeze borders to uh, Soviet uh, borders in a way to sort of, I think, protect Armenian territorial integrity at the expense of uh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, Dove, kind of your sense on, on both of those uh, as we wrap up? Well, the 75th anniversary has not been without controversy. Uh, maybe a great example of that, the World Zionist Congress, which was founded by uh, Theodore Herzl that started this whole uh, movement toward the creation of the state in, in 1897. They just met in honor of the anniversary and uh, the member of the parliament, uh, Mr. Rothman, who was behind this judicial ref so-called reform, uh, was virtually locked into his room by many of the uh, delegates to the Congress who uh, oppose exactly what he's doing. And in fact, there was supposed to be a resolution that would have uh, criticized what Netanyahu is trying to do. And it would became clear to the leadership that it would go against Netanyahu because those his supporters were simply outnumbered by as much as two to one, they postponed the vote. And I think that is a marker of what is still going on in Israel. And, and by the way, there was a Senate delegation uh, led by Mr. Schumer over uh, to Israel, and they raised with Netanyahu the question of why not Iron Dome for Ukraine? And he kind of said he would, but uh, it was in a very Netanyahu kind of way, which meant, well, maybe yes and maybe no. And those kinds of reactions, plus what's going on internally in Israel, are really causing consternation in Washington and, and in the American Jewish community for that matter. With regard to Armenia, I mean, I'm, I'm scratching my head on this. I mean, I, I think it's three wars that were fought essentially over Nagorno-Karabakh over the last uh, 30 or so years. Um, and I, I don't understand what the, or don't claim to understand what the president of Armenia is trying to do here. But if I was, uh, if I were you, Vago, as, as an Armenian American, I'd be scratching my head and going, what the heck are you talking about? He has become a very polarizing figure, obviously, uh, both in the diaspora community, um, obviously seen as having grossly mismanaged the 2020 war that was just utterly devastating. And we had Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses uh, on on Monday's program where, where, you know, Sam, even though he's not a, a Caucasus expert, was sort of left scratching his head. He's like, you know, there have been a lot of wars, a lot of bloodshed. It's still a populous ethnically Armenian you know, millennia old community that lives there. Well, what happens now to them uh, if uh, if that's uh, not uh, the the case? Although you can see this from Pashinyan's standpoint, there, there was a broader alliance. It wasn't just Azerbaijan, it was Turkey and Israel working actively uh, to, um, uh, 
you know, support the Azeris in their war. And the idea is, and the concern has been that there would be a partition and the southern part of Armenia would be cut off, which would then bring the Iranians into this. So if you're Nikol Pashinyan sitting in Yerevan, you might be, you, you know, incentivized to sort of say, look, we've got to stop this. We have to at least pr protect uh, the core nation, even if it means trading away uh, some of these uh, other land claims that, that do extend, you know, deep into Turkey, right? Um, Manor Ararat has historically been Armenian, was given away in a Soviet era land swap, uh, effectively uh, to, to shrink the size of uh, Armenia and undermine it vis-a-vis -vis the other countries in the region without getting into the history of it. Again, what leaves me puzzled is, yeah, I can follow that rationale, but to me, it would look like if Vladimir Putin turned around and said, you know, uh, maybe I can do a lot better and get rid of sanctions and all the rest if I simply was ready to negotiate on Kaliningrad and give it back either to Germany or Poland. I mean, it, that is beyond anybody's imagination. But you could see where um, it's the same crazy logic is applying here. Yes, there's a, a good reason to, to talk about this, but it's a very dangerous game once you get involved in it. Uh, in, indeed, uh, indeed existential. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Absolutely terrific having you on. Always a pleasure. Hope everybody has a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much.